Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From the small towns. To the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is. The Our American Stories Podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the story of General George Washington and his experiences at Trenton and Princeton. Also, we bring you the story of a young man who was a bodybuilder and paid his way through college by playing video games. And finally, we bring you the story of how investor and business owner Fawn Weaver 
fell in love with a story that involves a former slave and Jack Daniel. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in, day out to give you the kind of content that reflects a good and decent country. And on our show, the country is the star. America's the star. And by the way, we are a nonprofit, so we're looking for your support. Go to the Giving tab at OurAmericanStories.com and make a donation. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly gifts. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now, Monty brings us Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arn. Aristotle says that the highest thing we can see is beauty and that it involves moral acts and acts of courage. Dr. Arn tells us the story of the man that exemplified that during our founding era, George Washington. Here's Monty. George Washington was a beautiful man, according to many in the founding era. Here's Dr. Larry P. Arn, president of Hillsdale College, with more on that and this all-important man of the revolution. Abigail Adams, when she uh, met him, she wrote to her husband, I had been told that he was handsome, but I did not know the half. So he was very striking. He was unusually tall. For those age, he's probably six foot three. And then he was a tremendous horseman. He's just awesome man. He could ride his horse into and through a battle without using his hands. And that was awesome because, you know, at uh, the Battle of Princeton in uh, 1776, the Declaration of Independence is ratified. And then, of course, everything goes wrong for months. They did take Boston because Henry Knox went and got the cannon from uh, Fort Ticonderoga, which Ethan Allen had uh, liberated, dragged them across winter roads, got them up on a hill, and they now could shoot down on the British ships, and the British ships had to leave. But after that, everything was a disaster. They went up to New York because the British are going up there now. And New York is a complex place, if you think about it. There's an island, and then there's populous areas above and below it left and right of it, the sea goes all around, and the British have these big ships. And so at the Battle of New York and the Battle of Brooklyn, the British just simply completely outmaneuvered Washington. I mean, it was embarrassing. And he had to run his army down New Jersey, escaping with their lives, had to get across a bridge over to Philadelphia. And if they hadn't made it across that bridge, and Washington stood by the bridge, by the way, and calmly watched as people entered the bridge, and, and there was order. Well, now, you know, it's winter, and he needs to do something. Because it'd be, you know, we're going to, in our first year, we're going to have only defeat. So on Christmas night, he crosses the Delaware and attacks Trenton. And he hoped to wake him up. He had uh, a main man in his army who organized all the boats to get everybody over. And, of course, they were three hours late. So now it's 10 o'clock. Their hope of surprise, they think, is gone. And now Washington says, we're going to go on anyway, because if we don't win here, we're going to be dead by nightfall. Uh, Well, they get there, and the Hessian soldiers 
and they were from a German state called Hesse. And those soldiers were the main export of their country because they were really great soldiers. And the country would rent them out and get money to sustain the country. And so those soldiers were very good soldiers and they were fighting for their own country, see? It wasn't like they were just mercenaries fighting for themselves. And anyway, they'd had a very nice Christmas night and they were drunk in bed when the Americans got there and they took the place and hardly a casualty on the American side. And then something bad happened. Uh, the report comes that Cornwallis is coming down in relief. And Washington doesn't think that's a good enough victory. He's got to stop Cornwallis at Princeton. And he takes the forces northish from Trenton. And when he gets there, the American troops are in flight. They're running. And in this case, unlike later at the Battle of Monmouth, Washington didn't say anything, didn't wave his arms, didn't shout. He just rode his horse directly through the troops toward the enemy. And Washington had an adjutant named Fitzwilliams, and he writes about this, and he says that when Washington got close to the British, he didn't have any way to know if anybody was with him. But they had all turned around and fallen in line alongside Washington. And Washington got close to the British, and he starts giving the orders to fire. There are about 17 of them, right? And he pulls his sword out. His horse is just walking steadily. And there's a great volley, and Washington is shrouded in smoke. And Fitzwilliams reports that he covered his eyes with his cap because he could not bear to see Washington falling. And then the smoke cleared, and there was a great cheer because he was just still on his horse in the same posture, still going. And the British, they basically just turned around and ran from him, see? So if you see somebody do something like that, that's a, you know, just the story of it to me is thrilling because Aristotle says that the highest thing we can see is beauty. The Christian version of that is beatitude, seeing God. You recognize it by sense perception. You just see it. And you know what it is. And that includes moral acts, like great acts of courage. And when people see things like that, it's printed in them. It makes them better because they aspire to such things. And that was the effect of Washington on people. And great job, as always, to Monty, and a special thanks to Dr. Larry Arnn. And what we love to do here at Our American Stories is put you in the place of the people at the time they were doing what they did. In context, none of these people, George Washington or anyone else, including ourselves, knows what's going to happen next in our lives. And what those soldiers saw that day, well, it was imprinted on them, probably for the rest of their lives. And that story was brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who support our storytelling and our history stories. Up next, Faith brings us the story of Damon Cox, whose upbringing was full of poverty and abandonment, yet he has chosen to respond to his circumstances with hard work and determination, no matter the task. Here's Damon. I started off uh, playing video games as a kid. Uh, we were like a super, super poor family. We lived in a trailer out in front of my Mimi's and Papa's house, so there wasn't really much to do. So video games was kind of a way to escape. 
my parents used to have an Atari and a Nintendo. So it was just a thing that I used to play with a lot. And it was just something I really, really enjoyed. And uh, once I started getting into like more of the shooter based video games, friends would come over and I would play them and I would beat them. And uh, I was just the best one out of our little friend group. And then uh, later on, we would eventually move and get internet and I was able to play online and I was able to beat uh, multiple people like all around the world. And then eventually I decided to start running some like game battle tournaments, which are online tournaments. And I was able to win some of those and it got some recognition and some traction from some of the top players. So I was able to play with them. And then one day I finally just got up the courage to go into uh, Halo 4 AGL Nashville and I was able to compete in Nashville. At Nashville, I was, I think, 13, 14. I walked in and it was a little game studio, like game arcade type thing. And um, there was hundreds of people there. And I was just really excited uh, to be there. And then also getting to meet all these people that I've been playing with online and kind of like my heroes at the time. It was really cool seeing like all of them and being able to like see that they're like one of us uh, in a way. So I was able to play with them and then um, I got to go on main stage and compete and seeing like your uh, gamer picture and everything like that brought up and having like fans like kind of say your name and stuff was uh, a really big moment for me, especially at like 13. It is just, yeah, no one's ever doing that. And I was pretty much the youngest one there. There may have been a couple who were around my age, but everyone else was about 16 to 20 years old. And so I just was kind of like the short little skinny guy who was just there to play video games. And But honestly, I felt so at home because everybody there was just so nice, so outgoing, just just happy to be around one another who shared the same interests. Ended up winning and I came back and surprised my parents with a $15,000 check. Uh, at first, they were kind of iffy. My mom was definitely like, kind of like, okay, maybe you can't do something. But my dad was like, I don't know about this. And it was so new, a lot of people really didn't know anything about it. So my dad definitely was not on board yet, but my mom started like, okay, maybe you can play and everything like that. But at the same time, like what 13 year old is gonna get a full yes from both parents saying, yeah, let's just spend more time playing video games. Not many people are going to like, being able to convince their parents. Now, right now it's becoming more of a common thing because like, uh, Fortnite is allowing uh, this opening for like $3 million tournaments. So a lot of parents are actually like buying coaches and stuff like that for their kids um, to try to like get better at video games. Just like uh, baseball, you'll hiring a pitching coach or anything like that. That's what they're doing for video games now. So it's kind of like becoming the norm, but definitely 10 years ago, it was not even uh, like an idea to have someone literally come home and go, you know what, I wanna not go to school anymore. I wanna do video games full time. There's no way that would slide <laughs> 10, 20 years ago. <laughs> Whenever I was like first like diving into video games a lot more, I would try to play eight to 10 hours a day. I would literally come home, throw my backpack on the ground. I would try to do my homework on the, like, on the school bus on the way back, just so I had more time to play video games. So I would get home and start playing video games. Well, when my parents got off work, they were like, why didn't you like uh, go hit with your brother or why didn't you shoot basketball or go outside and just kind of play around in the woods? And I was like, well, I wanted to play video games. Well, my parents would say like, we'll go outside and play or play outside with your brother and everything. And then after you play for a little bit, you can come back in and uh, play video games. 
so I would go outside pretty much just try to stall time until I can come back in and play video games. And then uh, whenever I finally got to start competing in tournaments and starting to win, I found out I was kind of good at it. Started making a decent amount of money. I ended up making about 125, 120 grand total. Was able to help pay for my first vehicle and help pay for my first like three years of college. Now that doesn't mean that I always made good decisions with the money. I also splurged on different like gaming accessories. Like I always wanted the the newest and the best stuff. So I got a new headset, a new monitor, uh, two custom controllers. Uh, so I, I definitely didn't make the smartest decision with the money, but I was able to make a couple good decisions where it doesn't look as bad now when I talk about it. <laughs> so I, I competed uh, all the way up to 15 and like 15, 16 years old. And then I kind of just started diving into sports a lot more. So I started playing baseball. I played varsity baseball. So we made it to state and we ended up losing state. And that kind of was like, okay, maybe baseball isn't going to be the best for me. So I ended up transitioning into bodybuilding. So um, whenever I was younger, my dad ended up just running away from us. My last memory, we were at a stoplight and he opened the door and took off running, like, like just took off running. Whenever we got home, there was actually police officers who ended up uh, taking my mom off of a um, miscommunication because uh, my real dad like pinned these charges on my mom and so she ended up going away and uh, we're just was stuck in the trailer until our mama came and got us. My mama had this uh, guy like come over and take care of us uh, and he ended up becoming my real dad after my mom got out of jail. They hit it off real good and uh, they got married and then after that they adopted me. It's not really something I remember a whole lot of. I remember the adoption part but uh, the age is kind of like little iffy for me I don't remember everything but my brother definitely doesn't know anything at all and it was just something that I had to like step up and like be the big brother for and like try to show him something else to take his mind off of like so we just threw ourselves into competition so competitions was always the thing that kind of helped me escape like that thrive to be better was always something that I wanted to do and it kind of just rubbed off on my little brother so we competed in many different things like my brother did cage fighting we grew up doing different mma stuff i played baseball he played football i i don't feel sorry for myself at all we found a a dad who was literally 10 times better than what the real one was supposed to like ever be like the dad i have now has made me into something that i am like so proud to be literally the actions of my my real dad um made me just thrive to want to be better to try to help out my mom because like he just ran away and like we weren't good enough so i was like well i'm gonna be good enough for this this family so i want to just make my mom proud and make my dad proud that's all i want to do Whenever I was trying to become a professional gamer, we needed a place at a like a certain ranking. We ended up placing outside that ranking and it kind of brought me down because I put everything I had into that time and I just wasn't good enough to win. So I kind of just got real down and was like, you know what, maybe it's time for me to kind of like pin this up and try something else. That's whenever I went to bodybuilding. Like that's when bodybuilding was kind of like my escape now. So I ended up selling all my stuff, actually. I sold my custom controllers. I sold everything but my monitor. Monitor was the only thing I kept. 
but bodybuilding kind of helped me escape because of how like the schedule was wake up early two workouts a day uh meal prepping uh eating every like two and a half hours i started off on everything whenever my friend wanted me to come spot him one day at the gym so i i went up uh to spot him and after we got done doing a chest press he goes uh let's see how much you can do so i was like okay let's see what i can actually do and we put a 25 i was like, i'll definitely be able to do that and i failed miserably at it and i was like okay, I need to start working on this. So it started eating me just alive inside of like how weak I was. I was 135 pounds my beginning of my senior year. And this is when I started working out. My friend's dad just bought a gym. So there was no excuses not to work out. So I started working out with all of them. And then by the senior year, I was 197 pounds and I had stretch marks out of the wazoo. So I put it on a lot of size, but it was through intense training, like intense training, at least six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. So I ended up getting a coach and he was able to show me how much water to take in, how much food to take in. But uh, we needed to do a bulking series because I was a little bit like smaller at the time. So we did a 16 week bulk and I was on 5,200 calories at first. And it seemed like a lot, but I wasn't gaining as much weight as he wanted to. So he actually bumped me up to 7,000 calories total at the end of it. I was eating so much, so much. I would wake up hungry throughout the night and I had peanut butter next to my bed. And I would literally wake up, do like two bites of peanut butter and just roll over and go to bed. And then uh, after this, we decided to do a cutting phase so I can get ready for a show. So during my cutting phase, though... Uh, we had a little scare. Um, I left a shaker bottle out in the car uh, overnight. And the very next morning, I went up to uh, make a protein shake. I couldn't find my shaker bottle. So I went out to the car. I got it. Didn't think nothing of it. I just rinsed it out and then made my protein shake. Well, about two days later, I started uh, throwing up really bad. And it was honestly the worst pain of my life. My organs, I felt them contracting and actually like coming up. Um, and then I ended up passing out and my roommate found me in a trash can and brought me to the hospital. Well, uh, the shaker bottle had black mold in it and I was drinking out of it and I ended up infecting like six of my organs, five or six of my organs. And, uh, they said like 30 minutes to an hour, I would have died. So after that, I, they told me it would take two months to heal. I gave it two weeks, got back into the gym well, going into the show, I wasn't as defined as I was due to um, the sickness, but I still looked okay. And so I placed second in that show, and it was something where I was like, okay, I was able to blame it on something else instead of just me. I was like, okay, I was sick, so let's let's see how good I can actually do this. So the next year, I took off of college. So to become a professional bodybuilder at the time, uh, you needed a place at least top three in a state show and then go to nationals and place in a national show. So my whole goal was to literally just go to nationals. So we competed in the Southern Classic to compete. I ended up placing second there. It was not even close, honestly. Kind of like let me know that I wasn't going to be able to make it far without steroids. And I decided I wasn't going to do steroids. So it was time to just give up on that. But when Fortnite came out, I literally played one game and I was like, okay, I've got I've to do this. And this was on like the decline of bodybuilding for me. After I played that first couple of games of Fortnite, I was like, okay. And literally the next morning went out, bought a uh, headset, controller, Xbox. 
because I started back playing like 10 hours a day. And when Apex came out, I just dove straight in and I was running game battles off the start on that game and uh, just still doing that, just making steady income off that game. So uh, right now, a lot of colleges are trying to make teams uh, for like different esports teams because they see how big that it's taking off now because like recently league of legends actually had more viewers than the super bowl so uh people are starting to like figure out okay maybe video games are kind of here to stay so it's getting a lot of attention now so a lot of colleges are actually handing out scholarships for their like sports teams so their esports team and i say within five years we'll have like sec teams we'll have like the pack 10 everything like that or pack 12 whatever um we would have like actual like big big teams playing now uh, against each other so it'll be really exciting to see like how much video games progress in about five to ten years so like battle royale is kind of what's hitting the scene right now it's uh pretty much like 60 to 100 players drop in on a map and you just scavenger loot and the last player lives um is like going to be the winner so that's the thing that's like making Fortnite so big. Uh, there was games who did it before, but no one did it to like the standard that Fortnite did it. They did it with color. They did, they did it with pop. If you like see Fortnite, it's so colorful. They do like these creative skins. And so it was very easy to draw like a younger age to play a game. And they also try to keep it uh, friendly. They don't actually like call it kills. They call it like frags because a lot of parents try to pin psychotic behavior on video games it's like okay well if they're killing like little bots and little characters then it may have them a tendency to try to like grow up wanting to like shoot and stuff like that but fortnite tries to take all that away and just takes it about the video game so a lot of people look at gamers as just anti-social people who don't want to go outside uh usually unathletic um they just like pin them as like they're in their mom's basement playing video games Whenever I was going to these uh, tournaments, I figured out a lot of them played sports. Uh, a lot of them were just very, very outspoken. They love just talking to you and meeting new people and everything. So it was crazy to see how different the stereotypes are. Now, of course, there's going to be like antisocial people, like even in sports today, like there's going to be players who don't want to go in front of the camera just like video game players like there's a lot of people who maybe like they come from a background like me who didn't take it as well as i did and they had a rough like growing up so they go okay maybe like i, I want to stay inside i don't really want to talk to people all that much uh but video game players from what i like got to know them as they were very outspoken they loved meeting new people love being around a community who love video games the best I've ever felt was uh, during video games compared to playing in the state championship of baseball, uh, being on stage in bodybuilding and being on stage for uh, video games. Video games is by far uh, the best feeling I had. There's something about being on stage with uh, 10 other gamers and having 500 to 1000 people watching you. You turn around and you see this big screen and it's your screen was brought up there because maybe you made the play of the, of the game. And everybody like chanting your like gamer tag. So my gamer tag was hyper. So uh, everybody like chanting hyper. It was just one of the best feelings. It felt like I was I did something. I accomplished something. There is definitely people that I look up to that I know that I will probably never be as good at. But that's not really a mindset that I like to have. I like to literally see someone who's better than me and be like, okay, well let me try to match that skill level. 
So whenever I watch someone play, I literally look at them and I'm like, okay, what are they doing different? What is their decision makings that are making them like this elite player? It pretty much like eats me alive that why am I not that good? So I start practicing more. If they're doing a mechanic that I'm not doing or they're playing on a setting that I'm not playing on, then I swap to that and I'm trying to match them, but not only match them, be better than that. Seeing like five, 10 people who are literally light years ahead of me is amazing because it's still a learning experience for me. I, I figured like, okay, I'm getting really good at this because like right now I'm like with on Xbox, I'm within the top 30 uh, in the United States. And then right after my I broke my hand, I realized how short this can actually be for me as a career. Having a backup plan in a main career is still the like the main thing I need to have a priority on. So I'm trying to figure that out. And gaming is literally just the secondary just to pay bills right now while I just finish up my degree. So uh, I probably play about five to six hours a day right now but there is days where i do play more and there is days that i do play less but i try to play at least five to six hours a day that's the only way to pretty much stay consistent at the top level and uh, i think that's a low number actually because back in the day whenever i was competing i was playing for about eight to ten hours a day but uh, it seems like a lot everybody's like you're sitting inside but if you think about it, I mean, like, how much does your son play baseball? Like, they have probably double practices like I did. When they get home, they're probably throwing the tennis ball against the, the wall, trying to, like, work on ground balls, going outside, hitting wiffle balls and stuff like that. So it averages about the same. If you want to be the best at something, you got to put the hours in. So that was that, that's something that I definitely see changing, though, as I'm trying to, like work my way into strength and conditioning side because I would love to be a strength and conditioning coach. So finishing up the college degree and getting a good job, that's kind of my new mindset. So I would love to take my dad to a UFC fight um, in Madison Square Garden. That's like my dream bucket list to give him. And my mom's always wanting to go to Hawaii. So my new goal is it's not be a pro gamer, not be the pro bodybuilder. It's literally just give each of them something that because they gave me everything. So now it's like I want to do that for them. So that's my new like kind of sport, I guess, is that. And you've been listening to Damon Cox and what a delight from gamer to bodybuilder and back to gaming. Fortnite just grabbed him. Plus, the life filled with steroids didn't really appeal to him. Smart kid. Really smart kid. And now a young man. And gaming, well, it's becoming a national, well, it's become a national sport. Like it or not, and there are a lot of critics. The number of people doing this, the number of colleges turning these things into scholarships, um, it's just happening. And the amount of money being made in the industry, it's for real. By the way, folks, if you love what you're listening to, these stories we bring you each and every week, we'd ask that you go ahead and give us a five-star rating or review us. Let us know what you like about the show. It really does help us on Apple and all of those other platforms you listen to us on. And finally, Robbie brings us the story of Fawn Weaver. At a time when she needed it most, Fawn happened upon the story of Uncle Nathan nearest green the former slave who taught jack daniels how to make whiskey here's fawn
after a frustrating <laughs> a frustrating time with the founders that I was backing really 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 frustrating we could not see eye to eye on how business should be done and how people should be treated and after a really frustrating time I decided uh, I was going to do something that I almost never did which is I went on vacation <laughs> And my husband is an executive vice president, one of the executive vice presidents at Sony Pictures, and he also sits on the board for the Motion Picture Association of America. Their uh, Asian, I think it was their Asian council was having a meeting in Singapore. And at the very last minute, I said, you know what, babe, I'm going to come with you on that trip. I know it's a work trip for you, but I just want to get away from what is going on and we got to the hotel in the morning we were in the hotel lounge and i opened up the new york times international edition and on the cover of the uh, new york times international edition was the headline jack daniel embraces a secret ingredient help from a slave and beneath that was a picture of jack daniel and his entire crew and right next to him to his right was an African American man. And the the thing that a lot of people miss with that photo, but it's what drew me into that photo is Jack Daniel was the big guy in in the photo. It was his company. This was his crew, but he seated the center position of the photo to an African American man. And at the time no one knew who that African American man was. And so I you know having 5 days with nothing to do <laughs> i decided to start diving in and digging in and it's something this actually isn't something that's new for me i've never taken it this far where i dove into the rabbit hole and never came back out but it's something that i enjoy doing on the sabbath so my husband and i observe the sabbath 24 hours a a week we do nothing work related and so what i like to do on my sabbath and i have for decades is i go into my research rabbit hole i'll find a topic it could be something that pops up in my news feed it could be something that i heard about earlier in the week while i was working and just didn't pause to dig into it and i'll go back to it on the sabbath and so i had literally 5 days to do nothing but to research this story of this African American man and so and so I start digging in to this story and the thing that was ironic is is we read the story that morning we were both absolutely blown away that there was this thought that there was an African American man that may have been at the beginning at the start at the founding of this iconic American brand if you go around the world there are very few brands that would be considered iconic american i mean even if you go with jim beam for instance who dates back to a similar date but the company's now owned by japanese and so when you're talking about iconic american brands there's there's few things that say that quite like jack daniels and so to see this african american the picture the the center position being seated to this man and nobody knew who he was they it was said that they believed it was a man named Nearest Green but they didn't know and then i went and i googled the name Nearest Green which they had misspelled at the time 
which we've now done the research and and the uh, it, the spelling was definitely incorrect at that time but we googled you know nears green and nothing came up except for this New York Times piece and then a regurgitation of the piece, which is to say that every newspaper around the world was reprinting, some of them not giving credit, <laughs> some of them giving credit, but it was the exact same story over and over and over and over again. And, and so I thought, this is insane. How do you have this African-American man at the center of this iconic American brand and nobody has any information on him? And so I, I did try to do digging, but literally nothing came up. And then I went back maybe about four hours later and to see, did I miss something the first time around? And then a Wikipedia page had popped up. Now the Wikipedia page didn't exist before. There wasn't a whole lot on it that wasn't a part of the New York Times piece, but it did reference a book called Jack Daniels Legacy. So I ordered Jack Daniel's Legacy and uh, had it sent to my home. I ordered it on Amazon, had it sent to my home, and I did whatever research I could do from the hotel room, but it really only lasted about a day or so because after that, there, there was nothing. It was the Wikipedia page, it was the New York Times piece, and, and that was it. So I figured, well, when I get home, I'll read the book. It will probably not reference him by name. It'll probably refer to a colored man or a enslaved man or a slave or a Negro. Or th That was my thought process of how it would be uh, spoken about in the book because that's what is common. And so my thought was they're probably just putting two and two together that this African-American man is the same person that was in Jack Daniel's legacy, even though he's not mentioned by name. So that was my thought process. So I ordered the book, but I certainly wasn't expecting much from the book itself. And then a few days later, we finished in Singapore and we went on what was meant to be a, a two-day, just kind of an add-on vacation to, I believe it was Kuala Lumpur. And we went there, we checked into the hotel, we had a beautiful day. And then the next day, we went to a spa and we're not big spa people, it's not really what we do, but every now and again, we'll go on vacation. And so Keith wasn't participating. I went into the spa and did a massage and I think a facial or something. And, and when I come out, I'm expecting to go back to go, just pay for it and then, or charge it to the room and then go back to the room. But I, I come out and Keith is in the lobby. And to know my husband is to know he loves me so much but he would not be sitting in the lobby of a spa unless there was something that was needed. And so he looks at me and I walk over to him and I, I could see concern in his eye. And so I walk over and, and uh, he takes my hand and he says, uh, babe, we need to pray, come, come sit with me. And so we sit and I said, what are we praying about? And he said, Brittany has been in a motorcycle accident and it doesn't look good. Now, Brittany 
is my niece who is as much a, a daughter as she was my niece. We don't have any children. We've not been able to have children. We've been now, we're moving into our 17th year of marriage. And so she is very much so that baby girl. I was there from the very beginning. Uh, I was telling someone the other day that she was so funny as a little girl because anytime I would go to the restroom, she'd follow me into the restroom. <laughs> and I don't know what the fact, and I go, Brittany, can I just go to the bathroom? And she'd say, sure, but she'd never leave. I don't know if it was me going into another room and she not being able to see me. I don't know what it was. But, uh, but she is just my baby girl. And so when he said it, I immediately began to cry. And uh, we, we tried to pray for about a second. And I said, I can't, I, I can't, give me, give me your phone. And, and I uh, looked at the text that my sister sent and uh, I responded to the text. And I said, tell Brittany, that she cannot leave me, whisper in her ear that I am on my way. She cannot leave me. I will be right there. She has to hang on. And uh, my sister texted me back within 30 seconds and said, I'm sorry, sis, she's gone. A, a driver uh, hit her head on. They, they were turning and the sun was blocking, was glaring on the glass, and the driver never saw my niece and floored it while making a left. So she had, she had not a chance. And uh, my world absolutely shattered. And uh, so we both cried quite a bit to a place where the, the people in the spa, the manager of the spa came over because obviously we were disturbing what is otherwise a very peaceful experience for people and we recognized that. So we went outside and just, I mean, we could not get ourselves together. And finally, uh, we were able to pull it together enough to be able to walk back into our hotel room and got to our hotel room and again, just absolutely lost it. And I probably say, I don't know, you know how you cry until there's literally no more tears left. You see this in, in, in kids, in kids where they'll just pour down tears and tears and then they're still yelling, but there's no tears coming down because they've literally cried all the tears out. And that, that happened to Keith and I. And uh, Keith, he turns to me and he says, uh, what would Brittany have us do in this moment? And Britt had just been at our house a couple weeks before. She had just celebrated her birthday and she was at our home. And it, I don't believe in regrets. I do believe in lessons. And it was a huge lesson for me because as she sat in the kitchen with my husband for hours talking about me and and I listened to her say Fawn is, has always been a mom to me and, and, and to tell him different stories of different things and ways I've impacted her life and meanwhile I'm responding to emails uh, and and doing what you know is important if you will and uh, she left that night on her motorcycle but earlier in the afternoon, we had been all been hanging out and having Don Julio 1942. And uh, so he turns to me 
And he said, what would Brittany have us do? And I said, she'd have us go raise a glass of 1942. And so we left out of the room to go to the hotel bar to try to find 1942. And on our way out, we were passing through the outside area where there's a pool. And I remember Keith walking on a step before me and I being on the step uh, right above. And we had to pause momentarily because hundreds of white butterflies began circling the lower portion of our legs. We literally could not move because they were just circling. I've, I've never seen that before. I've never seen it since. And they circled us for a couple of minutes and then took off. And we looked at each other and said, Brittany has just ascended. And we went to the hotel bar. We had our 1942, we cried some more, and uh, we got on a plane five o'clock the next morning, First, the first plane that was out, going out. And we arrived back, and as soon as I get back to Los Angeles, I go into full party planning mode. I knew Brittany would not want a funeral. She would want for people to feel as though her homegoing ceremony was the best time that they've had. She would want people to enjoy it. It was what Brittany would have loved. And so for two weeks straight, I poured myself into planning every piece of uh, this this party with, with her mom and her dad and my siblings. And after it was over, we go back home and now I have to actually deal with the fact that she was gone. For two weeks, I didn't have to deal with it because I was in party planning mode. And we get back home and uh, I pick up a package that is on my desk and it's an Amazon package. Now, Keith will tell you there were 20 Amazon packages in my on my desk, but the package I'm referring to uh, was Jack Daniels Legacy. And I open it up and I go to the living room. I sit on the living room and at the time, our living room, like it does here in Tennessee, uh, it had floor to ceiling windows. And I remember starting to read this book and expecting not much. I mean, again, maybe for it to mention a Negro or a black person or a slave or, but never for it to actually say nearest green. And very early on in the pages, Jack Daniel as a young boy is introduced to what the book refers to as a coal black Negro. And he's introduced to him by a person that they are both working for. Uh, Nearest Green was a rented slave on this man's property. And Jack Daniel had come to work as a chore boy. So Jack is, for you know those who do not know, Jack was the tenth child, and his mother died when he was four months old. So he was wet nursed by the neighbor. He was a little kid, a runt, if you will. He never grew to be more than five foot two, even as an adult. And so if you think about him as a kid, he's not a great farmhand. He moved to that property when he was somewhere between seven and eight years old. 
and eight years old as a chore boy. And that means anything from going to get water from the well for the family, milking cows, feeding the hogs, the, you know, whatever you had to do, dealing with the slop. It, it was not glamorous in the least bit, but the book says that he was fascinated by whatever was going on on this property where you had the, the mules and wagons shuffling in and out of there, but no one would ever take him to go see what was happening on the other side of the property. And uh, the reason is the person who they were both working for, both Nears Green and Jack Daniel, was a preacher and a distiller. And he married a teetotaler and he had a church on his property. So 338 acres on one end of the property was his home. On another end of the property was his church. And on another end of the property, if you're looking at it as a triangle, was his distillery. So he kept his three worlds separate, his family, his distillery, and his church. And his, his family and his church basically issued an ultimatum. And so Dan Call decided that he was going to leave the distillery business, but the distillery never stopped operating on his property. And it never stopped operating under a man by the name of Near Screen. So in the book, uh, Jack Daniel is introduced to this coal black Negro by the, the preacher saying, he is the best whiskey maker I know of. Now, in this book, the reason why that's important is he says verbatim, this is Uncle Nearest, he is the best whiskey maker I know of. It's important because there were 16 other distilleries in a four mile radius. So the question became, why was he the best? And why did the preacher want for him to teach Jack everything he knew about his way of making whiskey. And it was because the way that Nearest Green made whiskey was what we now know as Tennessee whiskey. But I'm sitting in my home in Los Angeles reading this, and from the very early portion of the book, you see over and over again, Nearest Green, Uncle Nearest, Eli Green, which was his son, George Green, which was another son, you see them mentioned over and over and over and over again in a biography that is not that big. And Nearest and his boys are mentioned more times than Jack's own family. So I'm reading this and I am falling in love with two characters, which was completely unexpected for me. I'm falling in love with the Uncle Nearest character, but also the Jack Daniel character and who they both were and what they represented in this remarkable time. So I'm sitting on my couch and just completely engrossed in this story. And you've got to remember that not only have I just lost my niece in, and just my world is wrecked, but this is now happening in July of 2016. So if you remember what was happening at that time, our country was being divided by race. We had a, a political, <laughs> both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats were using race as a wedge and not very many people had hope at that moment. And I was looking for hope in terms of trying to escape what I was dealing with and grieving for my niece. But in this book, I'm finding a different kind of hope because of the situation we're in in America at that time. So I'm reading this and I remember uh, 
telling my husband when he walked in, I said, babe, I really like this guy. And he's like, who? And I said, Jack Daniel. And he was so confused by this because he didn't know what I was reading. And so I start telling him about the book and, 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 uh, and the fact that Nears has mentioned over and over and over and over again. And I remember when I looked up from the book at that moment, I remember right in front of me where the window was seeing a white butterfly, a single white butterfly, just kind of fluttering back and forth, back and forth. And it took me back to those white butterflies that circled our legs. And I, and I remember looking at that and saying, Hey Brit, but not thinking very much of it again. This is, I think when you lose someone, you begin looking for hope in any and every thing. And I remember looking and saying, Hey Brit, and going back to reading and just loving this story. And I, I got so engrossed in the book and it's not that long of a book, but I got so engrossed in the book and because I, I think still trying to escape, trying to look for hope. And I remember taking the book with me in the kitchen and still kind of reading while I was, I didn't know what I was doing, maybe making tea or something, but I'm still reading and doing something else. And I look up and in the window is a single white butterfly going back and forth, back and forth. And I go into my office a little later in the day. I pick the book back up. I start reading it some more. And here comes that white butterfly again. And I began to associate the white butterfly with my niece. And I began to associate the niece with this book. And, uh, and my love for this book and this story became interwoven with my love for my niece. And I can't explain it other than to say, I had to tell the story of Nears Green and Jack Daniel in a way that I believed the story was lived. And I believed my niece was directing it from heaven. It's the only way that I can explain it. And as crazy as it sounds, because if we go back, we're, we're talking about a brand, right? that normally when you're talking about a whiskey brand, you're not talking about butterflies in heaven. And, you know, but that is what, that is what was the origin of my interest. I can tell you that I had absolutely no plans to go in the whiskey business. I, I'm a, a child of two teetotalers. The last place I would have been putting my money was whiskey. Uh, and yet I began looking at the story and diving into the story and wanting to know more and more and more and more. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And it became very clear to me that the only way I was going to really learn as much about the story as I felt like my heart was being pulled to learn was to actually travel to Lynchburg, Tennessee to interview the descendant, the only descendant that that New York Times article had referenced Uh, a man by the name of Claude Edie at the time was 91 years old. And so I set my heart on going to interview him and had decided what I wanted to do for my 40th birthday was to research the story of near screen on the outside looking in, it would make no sense to me whatsoever being in it. It made all the sense in the world because that book And that story was providing me hope that I needed in that moment, and I didn't want it to stop.
And that hope, well, it led Fawn Weaver down a wild path. From buying the house at the Dan Call farm, where Jack and Nearest worked, to meeting with her descendants, who told her that the best way to honor Nearest's memory was a bottle with Nearest's name on it. And that would turn out to be a company named Uncle Nearest's Premium Whiskey, which, of all people, Fawn Weaver started. And by the way, that bottle has been the most awarded new American whiskey in American history, with over 90 nods from the industry. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, by all means, go back and take a listen. We've covered the story of the DiMaggio's, a pizzeria running out of a second-story apartment, and even an Australian's love for the American buffalo wing, and so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.